0: is the first week of however many weeks i decide i guess at least six potentially seven weeks uh, where our primary study is going to be the puritans and um, i have a pretty uh, broad introduction for you today Um, and i also have a significant amount of things to talk about as it pertains to the church in england in the 1500s and that's what we're going to cover today, those two things. And then next week, we'll take, be, take even a deeper dive into a survey of the Puritans. And then we'll go from there for other topics as well. So, if you could, turn in your Bibles as means of introduction to Joshua 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 and then 19 through 24. One of the t- reasons, so years ago... I don't know how many of you guys know this. We started uh, a Sunday school rotation curriculum uh, for adult Sunday school where we taught Bible survey, uh, systematic theology, church history, uh, apologetics, and then lastly, a Christian living topic. So that's kind of our goal, and we kind of hold to that to some degree, but oftentimes we have other topics as well that come up. And I was tasked and have been tasked with church history for the better part of a decade, I feel like. So, we'll continue that tradition. Now, I used to take church history and do like a chronological view of it. But more recently, I've just been taking things that I like out of church history and want to talk about them. But I did realize the last two times, I've, this time and the previous time that I taught, yeah, several of the times I've taught, I take my cue from Dan's biographical message uh, two years ago, he talked on Martin Luther, so I spent six weeks talking on Martin Luther. Um, and this time, Dan talked about John Bunyan, who is one of the Puritans we'll talk about. And now we're talking about the Puritans. And then, in between that, we talked about the Synod of Dort, because it was the 400th anniversary. So, just a little plug for previous uh, lessons. I hope you've made your way to Joshua 4 at this point. But the reason we study church history is because it is a reminder to us of what god has done and what god has done in building his church uh, sovereignly protecting and directing his church through his word by the spirit um, and the power of christ alone so in joshua 4 um, the israelites have left egypt and they're about to cross um, the jordan river And when they pass the Jordan River, God has specific instructions for Joshua and the people for them to do something. So we're going to read about that, and I'll give you a little bit of commentary about it and then how that relates to the study of church history. But let's read Joshua 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here. Out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up of each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And here's why. That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. It kind of talks through that in the next verses, but then you go to verse 19. And it kind of repeats some of it, but it expands on it a little bit as well. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east side of the border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for, you, for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So, um, so when we come to church history, we're outside of the Bible— but we still see the same providential hand, mighty hand of God at work, saving a people, drawing them out um, from their sin, setting them apart in Christ. And um, so, in a way, when we come to a topic like the Puritans or any type of church history where we can see God's hand evidently at work, we're setting up memorial stones as well. So, that is my hope as we do this, as we uh, see the Puritans and the Reformation of the Church in England as a memorial stone. I think that's an Ebenezer. So if you guys want to have a really fun English name to talk about that hasn't been marred by the name Ebenezer Scrooge. That's a real positive sign for Ebenezer. Um, So let's pray to the Lord uh, for this opportunity to learn. Father, we come before you and we praise you, Lord, for how you have worked throughout history and how you continue to work throughout history, Lord, to draw people to yourself. Uh, Lord, we are grateful for uh, the preservation of your church and your word by your spirit. So, Lord, we ask that as as we uh, approach this study, Lord, that we would honor you and that we would look to you and worship you alone, not men. And, Lord, I pray that we would Um, our worship of you would increase because of what we know about what you've done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, if you have a handout, um, it should be several pages. I want to refer to the back page of the the handout, the last page. This is a bibliography. Uh, I don't usually pass this out, but there's a lot of resources I'm using uh, throughout this study, and this would be helpful to you. Uh, The primary resource that I'm using to guide our study is the one by Packer, uh, J.I. Packer, A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life. That'll be very helpful. Um, And if you want to, like, progress past what I study, I would suggest on this list both books by Joel Beakey and a couple of his friends, um, A Puritan Theology, A Doctrine for Life. And if you just wanted to get to know the Puritans individually... The second book listed there, Meet the Puritans, has about 150 essays on Puritan pastors, writers, scholars, and theologians. That would be helpful for you. All right, so let's, let's start by defining some terms when we talk about Puritanism. So my goal, I'll, I me mean, let's introduce the topic of Puritanism first, and then I'll talk about our plan going forward. So Puritanism— I first went to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Who has a set of encyclopedias? Actually, this was online, but I commend encyclopedias. I used to like pour over them. That might come as a shock to some of y'all as a kid. But I would just like thumb through it and find my favorite topics. Um, But the Encyclopedia Britannica, since we're dealing with England here, defines Puritanism this way that it is a religious reform movement in the late 16th and 17th centuries that sought to purify the Church of England of remnants, and this is interesting, not very politically correct, of the Roman Catholic popery that the Puritans claimed had been retained after the religious settlement reached in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. It's quite the definition. That's why I wrote it out on you so you didn't have to hear me saying it the whole time. You could read it as well. Uh, Puritans became noted in the 17th century for a spirit of moral and religious earnestness that informed their whole way of life, and they sought through church reform to make their lifestyle the the pattern for the whole nation. Their efforts to transform the nation contributed both to civil war in England, like, what are you talking about, Matt? Yeah, we'll get to that, Um, and to the founding of the colonies in America as working models of the Puritan way of life. Um, so, that's the Encyclopedia Britannica. So, encyclopedias give broad, big definitions. Uh, uh, dictionaries give shorter definitions. So, Webster says this, that the, the term Puritanism is the beliefs and practices and characteristics of the Puritans, and they believe in a strictness in austerity, especially in matters of religion or conduct. That might be what we think about with the Puritans, strictness austerity seriousness um i have a very long scholarly definition as well but i am not going to read that for the sake of time and for you and i didn't put it on your handout but let's just talk about a couple things within that definition the puritans for the most part are um, associated with uh, reformed um, uh, theology from continental europe hence calvin and geneva okay so, they're not Lutheran. So, if you start thinking of branches of the Reformation, you've got Luther, who's in Germany. It's the Holy Roman Empire. And then you've got um, Calvin, who's in Geneva, it's Switzerland. It's a totally different area. It's close to France. Uh, so, this is who, the, for the most part, the Puritans are connected to as far as their theology. Okay? So, that's one thing. Um, it's also within the context of the Church of England. We can't separate that. That's a very important detail. So there's a unique situation that's going on as England is going through the Reformation. So today, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about the Reformation in England and the impact for that, okay? Um, But oftentimes, Puritan, if you use the term Puritan in theological senses, um, it casts a pretty large net. Um, There's a term in our day and age for Christians, Bible-believing Christians that casts a very large net, and that is... Evangelical, we just say evangelical, and really, what we think of are people that are right-wing and vote Republican. I don't know. That's what that's that's what the media tells us. But a lot of times, the Puritans kind of think that too. These are people that were outside or, or desiring change in the Church of England, and sometimes they were nonconformists. And that's not necessarily who we're talking about. But there are uh, people like Bunyan. He's a Baptist. He's not from the Reformed tradition, and he's considered a Puritan. Um, John Owen is a congregationalist. He's not a Presbyterian, like many of the other Puritans were. And there's other gentlemen, uh, John Milton. Perhaps you remember him from your um, high school uh, literature classes. He wrote Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Um, He maybe had some divergent and unorthodox views about the Trinity. And then a couple other guys as well might not fit in This narrow view of Puritanism that perhaps I'm going to define for you. Um, And actually the term Puritan was a negative term um, when it was first applied in the day and age of the 1560s. Their opponents called them Puritans. It's probably, you, you might compare what the opponents of the Puritans were calling them, by calling them Puritans, to someone saying someone's holier than thou. You know, that's, that doesn't give a positive uh, a view of someone. Um, maybe also, you heard the term Bible thumper, you know? Here it is. Here it is, guys. Um, so, yeah, so those kind of things. So that's, it was a negative thought um, by using the name Puritan to identify this group of people, yet the Puritans in themselves adopted it. Um, so their opponents thought that they were, as they were seeking reform, that they were full of hypocrisy, that they were peevish full of conceit and only concerned about censuring others um, that has lasted through the ages since the puritan time uh, the noted 20th century essayist h.l mencken says this about puritanism he says puritanism it's the haunting fear that somewhere someone may be happy that's a really negative view of puritanism so i'm going to end it at that and we're not going to talk about anything else because that's frightening but just just to refer back to your English classes in high school, um, Russ, that's a long time ago, I know. <laughs> but who read Puritan works about the Puritans? Who read "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God"? All right, so that's that, so we know. So the only thing we know about Jonathan Edwards is that he believed in the judgment of God, right? That's that's what we know about him. That's what great that Edwards was being taught, right? But there's a lot of great stuff by Edwards. Two, who read uh, The Scarlet Letter? Yeah, so that didn't paint necessarily the, the greatest picture of Puritanism in New England, right? So this, there's a close connection of Puritanism to our American heritage. And then you also have to consider the Salem Witch Trials. You guys remember that? So none of, I don't think any of those three topics on their own Paint a very positive outlook of the Puritans. Would you agree with that? Like, oh man, why? Yeah, why are we doing this, Matt? (laughs) What's the (laughs) deal? We're all going to walk around with scarlet letters on our thing. I don't know. Uh, You know, Emily and I went to high school together, so anytime I talk about these things, it's like we're reliving going to high school (laughs) together. It's kind of there's a fondness and a excitement about it. Uh, Next. It's just neat that we can joke about these kind of things. We were sitting in the same class reading the Scarlet Letter and Pilgrim's Progress and stuff. It was fun. Uh, I like J.I. Packer's definition that you have here on Puritanism. Uh, Puritanism was, at its heart, a spiritual movement passionately concerned with God and godliness. Then he goes on and says, it was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal, and evangelism. In spiritual revival, and in addition, indeed, as a direct expression of its zeal for God's honor, the glory of God, it was a worldview, a total Christian philosophy. All right, so big two big ideas we have to get from the Reformation. One is the Bible, right? So the Bible is in the language of the people. The Bible is the appeal for authority in the Reformation, not the church or church councils or the Pope. It's the Bible. That's one big thing. So, that's a, that's, we've got to remember that. The second one is, is that God is glorified in all that we do. There's not a dichotomy between the sacred and the secular, but in all the things that we do, whether we work whether we raise our families, we bring glory to God. Not just going to church on Sunday and saying our prayers and and, uh, doing the seven sacraments. That's not spiritual life. Spiritual life is all of us. All of what we do can bring glory to God. So those two things, the glory of God and our pursuit of the glory of God in everything we do in the Bible. All right, so those are two big, and I have my hands up so you can see them, uh, marks that we have to understand okay next question i have is who are the puritans Uh, all right so i am narrowing the study even though i just referenced america um, to the puritan movement from 1560 to 1700 Um, our focus will also be in england so sorry america sorry netherlands nathan i'm sorry no scotland for right now I'm just just for right now that's not where I'm going with just just apologizing right now Um, so we're not going to talk about Edwards Um, there is Edwards is kind of the last of the Puritans and then even the Puritan tradition is passed down into men like Spurgeon Ryle the Princeton theologians Warfield and Hodge and even Martin Lloyd-Jones as well these guys are all recipients of a heritage through the Puritans um, the influential men we will talk about um, I've added to my list for you guys than what I have include the following. Uh, John Owen, Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, William Perkins, Richard Sibs, Thomas Watson, Thomas Manton, Stephen Sharnock, John Fla- Flavel, Thomas Goodwin, John Howe, William Ames, Thomas Cartwright, Jeremiah Burroughs, Matthew Henry, and William Grinnell, just to name a few. There's probably 150 others we could talk about, too. But those are the, the heavy um, hitters that we will touch on a little bit and appeal to. Uh, the next question I was going to answer when I wrote my outline earlier this week was, why should we study the Puritans? And had like eight points for that. And we're going to come to that next week, okay? So just remember that. If you want to know exactly why we're doing this, I'll explain that next week. Um, So here's our plan for the next six to eight weeks. Uh, Like I said, our primary resource is Packer's book, A Quest for Godliness. Um, Today, I want to give you a 30,000-foot view of the Church of England in the 1500s. We need to know the environment in which the Puritans became significant. Uh, So we'll talk about the church and um, in the lens of each of the different monarchs that ruled England at the time um, and the various efforts of church reforms that took place during their reigns. Um, in the future weeks, we'll talk about uh, the Puritans and their writings, and then we'll spend a few weeks talking about the Puritans and specific topics like the Bible and the gospel and the Christian life and ministry. And the last week, uh, we'll do a brief biographical lecture we won't, I will, on the life, ministry, and thought of John Owen, okay? That's our plan going forward. All right, are y'all buckled up? It is 925. Wow. That will bring us to uh, our survey of the Reformation in England. All right, so the first thing we need to talk about is who's ruling England at the beginning of the Reformation, and that's Henry VIII. He reigned a long reign, 1509 to 1547. All right, if I say Henry VIII, what do you think of? Come on, somebody. Wives. How many wives? Oh, six, Caleb, that was close, but <laughs> six wives. And there's, does everybody know the, how do you remember what happened to each of them? My kids knew. Yeah, go ahead. It's close. So it's, yes, divorce, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. That's how you know what are the outcomes of each of his uh, wives. So, that's, so Henry, the, Henry VIII had six wives, and we'll talk about why he had that many wives as we go forward. Um, but during Henry's reign, so it's 1509 is when he begins his reign, a monumental event in church history is 1517. That's when Luther um, um, nails the... Ninety-five theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, uh, so that is going on during Henry's reign. England is a Catholic country, like every other country in Europe was, okay? So, reign ruled by the Catholic Church. But England has a unique geography. It's an island, probably thinks of itself pretty independently, and if you're the king over England, you probably think of yourself pretty independently as well, and he did, Um, So, England has a unique role within the Roman Catholic Church. However, one of the first major impacts that happened during the time of the Reformation was the translation of the New Testament by Erasmus in Greek. So, the original Greek language by Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus is from the city of Rotterdam. I can't remember what country that's in. Netherlands, maybe? Uh, but for a period of time, he comes to Oxford and is a teaching fellow and a scholar at Oxford. Um, so he has influence in England. So when he produces his Greek New Testament, uh, people start reading it. Um, also, after Erasmus's Greek New Testament, um, which he has different translations on some texts than the Latin does that the, the church held to, Um, quickly after luther's 95 theses were posted at the door at wittenberg they were you remember we talked about this when the printing press was invented in the late 1400s luther's ideas went out like like crazy like in countries as far as england within a month his 95 theses were in england Um, but luther doesn't stop writing just those things in the subsequent years after 1517 he's writing treatises against the practices of the church uh one of which is called the babylonian captivity of the church and those um, works that he's writing are being printed and mass produced i mean we can't even understand what that means because we live in a world of i have too much information for this lesson but just information is being disseminated at an um, unparalleled rate than ever had been done uh, because of the printing press and um so, Luther's books make their way to England. Henry VIII is a devout Catholic. So, as people are reading Luther's books, Luther is setting up uh, opposition to the Catholic Church. Uh, the, the heads of the church in England and Henry VIII are saying, burn Luther's books. So, they make it a law to burn the books of Luther. And I don't know if you know this, but most Times when people are telling someone not to read something, so either burning a book or don't listen to this music or whatever, people tend to listen to the music or read the book, even when they're not supposed to. So the ban on those books by Luther actually caused um, more people to read Luther's books because they need to find out what they said. Um, there was a fertile ground for Luther's theology and thought, though, in England. And that's because in the late 1300s, early 1400s, there's a guy, he's one of the forerunners of the Reformation. He's the morning star of the Reformation. His name is John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe had a lot of uh, Reformation-type ideas in his theology. One of the main things John Wycliffe did, though, was he took the Latin Bible, and this is why we have Wycliffe Bible translators. Uh Uh-huh. He took the Latin bible and translated it into english so whoa so his followers continued up until the 1500s and they were called the lollards so the lollards are the followers of john Wycliffe. so when luther's ideas are coming they're like hey this sounds like Wycliffe. what luther's saying sounds familiar so there's a fertile soil for the seeds of reformation in england already um you might know about the White Horse Inn that met in Cambridge where they talked about Luther's work. Um, one scholar I read said there was so much Lutheran theology and beer being drunk at the public house at the White Horse Inn that they called it Little Germany. <clears throat> You'll remember Luther's wife was a beer maker. Um, so that, these, are, these are the things that are starting Reformation in England, so nothing major just yet. There's one man uh, prior to 1550 that stands out in the Reformation of England, and that's William Tyndale. Um, so we'll talk about him. He was born in the city of, uh, or he, as he grew up, he served in the city of Gloucestershire, um, where he served as a tutor, and he devoured and he. You know, God gifts people uh, specifically for tasks that are unbelievable. They have amazing natural ability. William Tyndale has amazing natural ability when it comes to languages. Um, he devoured Erasmus's Greek New Testament, um, and he started picking up on ideas that were different than what the church had been teaching when he read that. Um, you might remember the story that he argues with a Catholic scholar over dinner at the home of his employer, and um, he already has this desire to translate the Bible into English, okay, from the Greek New Testament. And he told this scholar that if God spares his life for many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the scripture than you do. Listen to you, Catholic scholar, the guy that's out here driving the plow is going to know more from you because he's going to know God's word. Um, and that was his goal, was to translate the Bible. What differentiates Tyndale from Wycliffe, like I said, Wycliffe translated from the Latin. So carrying over from Wycliffe is a lot of, um, uh, I guess there's, there's transla- a translation of a translation of a translation, right? So you lose some of the meaning. And he's actually bringing over a lot of uh, terms from the Bible that weren't part of the original in the Greek. Um, so his life goal was to translate the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into English. Um, Wycliffe also didn't have the benefit of his hitting the printing press and being able to be disseminated uh, through the land. 1526, Tyndale completes his New Testament translation. We, years ago, had this. Um, it was before we had this building. How long ago was that? Eight years ago, we had this exhibit come called, called Truth Remains, and it was just old Bibles. And um, one of the things... I think maybe was the, the the prize Bible. I mean, it was like Bibles from like 500 years ago, but one of them was a yeah. uh, Tyndale New Testament, and it was like a it was like this big, uh, so small but thick. And what would happen is they would print these in Europe, in continental Europe, and they would ship them to England, and they would ship them in like bales of um, textile. Uh, so, they would just stuff Bibles in there. So, they Bible smugglers. Kind of cool. And, but the, the, I guess Caleb and Noah, and maybe not Hudson, but my boys helped us set up for that when it was here. And the late, the, this was under glass the whole time. But when we were setting up, she goes, Do you want to hold it? And I was like, Oh, this is great. And it was amazing. I mean, it was something that was 400, 500 years old. It was amazing to think about. Um, um how life-changing that would have been so in his new testament translation um, his words some of the words that he used to translate changed from what the latin bible had said instead of the term do penance he used the word repent all right that that changes something for me right okay i'm supposed to repent not do penance charity was replaced with love Priest was replaced with either senior or elder. Confess was acknowledge, and church was congregation. So th- think about those type of things. Um, church is the Roman, the church. It's the Roman Catholic Church. There's nothing else. Uh, so they are dictating what things are. Um, charity versus love implies doing something. Like in order, I need to be giving in order to love. Um, doing pentance it's an emphasis on uh, my work Um, priest versus elder i mean a priest is uh, someone that makes sacrifices for you so the priest in the roman catholic church is you know with the mass uh, leading the sacrifice of jesus again Um, this is different this is these are groundbreaking translations that he did so all these are undermining the roman catholic Sacramental system. Roughly seventeen thousand of these Bibles were smuggled into England. England had about two and a half million people at the time. So, seventeen thousand Bibles in the life of of William Tyndale were smuggled into England. And that of the two and a half million people, probably not that many could read. Just be honest with ourselves. Uh, Fifteen thirty four. He revised his New Testament. He also added the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and several minor prophets as well. His translation was banned, and when it was found by the authorities, it was burned. God's Word was burned. Um, The genius, I I would commend, uh, John Piper has done several, probably 30, biography messages. The message on William Tyndale is worth your listen or you're reading, you can read it as well, you should, it's amazing. The statistics about um, the words, the amount of words that Tyndale used, his, his and how they've lasted to today, as far as, it's just groundbreaking in the study of linguistics in the English language. Uh, 90% of what um, Tyndale said in his translation was used in the King James Bible. So, which was about a 75 years later that it was uh, formed so he it was a gifted linguist just even the 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 phrases that we take uh so much for granted just that we say in everyday speech like hey am i am i my brother's keeper it's tyndale um shepherds abiding at night tyndale you know all these type things it's interesting i mean obviously the original language is saying it but the, the, the beauty of the English language too. He helped with that. Um, just Bible translation helped form modern languages. It's like the key to German, French, and English. Okay, Bible translations are key. Fifteen thirty six. He was in Brussels. That's where he had set up his uh, ring of smuggling Bible smuggling Bible group of people. Uh, he was arrested. He got tracked down by the English authorities in Brussels, and he was killed, executed uh, for his treasonous act of translating the Bible into English. His final prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, and he did, and then they closed again. But, so that's Tyndale. I think I've taught on Tyndale one other time, and I think I did an entire uh, class on Tyndale, so... That was ten minutes. So this is still under the reign of Henry VIII. Um, Henry was a devout Catholic. That's my next point here. Henry the Catholic, fifteen twenty one. So four years after Luther, Luther is a bull in the um, barnyard of the Roman Catholic Church, and he has been cast out of the church. Henry is quite the scholar, writes a book called A Defense of the Seven Sacraments in, opponent, in Opposition to Luther. And he earned the title Defender of the Faith. And then he married a woman by the name of Catherine of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon is from Spain. Spain is Catholic. So there's a uniting of Catholic Spain and Catholic England. Um, Catherine was initially betrothed to Henry's brother, who was supposed to be the king, but he died. Uh, They actually got married. Uh, So then once uh, he died, they wanted to keep that alliance. So Henry married Catherine. However, that was a, just remember this part, that was a violation of standard law at that time in the church. You couldn't marry your brother's wife. Um, And some would even argue at that time that there was scriptural evidence for that. But at the time, the Pope gave a special dispensation. The Pope saw the advantage of England and Spain being united through marriage. So he he granted a special dispensation. Just remember that, special dispensation. Um, However, Catherine disappointed Henry because she did not bear him a son, and he badly wanted one, so his line would continue. So then he appeals to the Pope and says, Hey, let me nullify this marriage The dispensation that was given by the previous pope was wrong. It's against church law. So let's just erase that. Let me marry somebody else so I can have a son. Um, The pope who loved the alliance between Spain and England did not want to upset Spain and did not grant the special dispensation. So Henry gets to work. Henry the scholar, he unleashes... Let me think here. One more point before that the 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 uh, ruler of Spain at the time was Charles V. He also was the Holy Roman Emperor, so he, he's the Holy Roman Empire, which is close to Italy, where uh, the papacy is, and Spain under his control. so the, the Pope does not want to upset him, uh, so Henry still desires to divorce Catherine. so he Gets his team of scholars to identify some opportunity for them potentially to uh, nullify this marriage. First thing they come up with was what I mentioned earlier that, that it violated church law and it needed to be corrected. You can see how that is scary, right? Is that the whims and the, the needs of the, political, of the de, political issues of the day? But also, his scholars deemed that Peter actually founded the church in England prior to the church in Rome I don't know how they figured it out but they determined that do you know that Peter went to England I don't know I don't either um so because of that that placed the Church of England as authoritative over the Church of Rome and who should lead the Church of Rome the Roman Catholic Church Henry because he's the supreme over the Church of England In 1533, his new Archbishop of Canterbury granted the divorce. So the ties are severing between the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England. This is not doctrinal. It's not because the Pope is placing his authority over Scripture. It's not because there's an issue with justification by faith alone. That's not the reason this is happening. It's all for political or um, the future uh, reign of Henry's heirs. 1534... The act of supremacy is passed, which made Henry, or whoever the monarch was, the head of the Church of England. Um, But this break from Rome did not mean that Henry had embraced the Reformation of Luther. Um, Yet, really faithful Catholic leaders weren't going to be submissive to Henry. They disagreed with this. So, the people that were placed in power with Henry ultimately were Protestants. So, think about Henry's sinful, power-hungry actions and how God's using it to build his church. Um, Henry's second wife, who he marries, um, forgot my names here, Anne Boleyn. um, Actually, Catherine does have one child just so you all know, her name is Mary. Put that in your head. Mary. His second wife is Anne, and quickly she became pregnant, and unfortunately, though, she had another daughter, and that was Elizabeth. Unfortunate for Henry. Um, But she was found to be unfaithful, which might not be true, uh, but those charges were created, and she was beheaded. And then his third wife was a woman by the name of Jane Seymour, and she produced his male heir, Edward. But she soon died after um, Edward was born. So that's the context. There's three children born to Henry, Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward, okay? So what's going on in the church right now? So, he's, so we don't have, the Church of England is not a Catholic church Per se, now, because it's not under the authority of the Catholic Church, what does it look like? Um, one thing, pursuing all these marriages and the legal issues with Rome cost Henry a lot of money. So it was a very big deal for him. So the first thing he did was dissolve the monasteries, seized all the land and the buildings where all the monasteries were, so where the uh, monks and nuns lived. He seized all those lands and then sold the land so he could get an influx of cash, uh, sold the lands to elite nobles in England. So the monasteries were dissolved. And that was a popular decision with the people. They resisted the privilege and the wealth that those monasteries had. So the, there was a lot of wealth being kept by the Catholic Church in those monasteries. Many of the monks and the nuns, at that point rejected their celibate vows, and they got married. So now that there's not a cloister for them each to live in, they decided to get married, monks and nuns together. <clears throat> um, he also shut down profit making pilgrimage sites. He called them Romish abuses. In 1538, he ordered that it should not be illegal for a man to read the Bible in English. Yes, we're getting somewhere. Remember, um, 1536, two years before that, Tyndale's killed because he's translating the Bible into English for people to read. But 1538, it is now legal for a man to read the Bible in English, and they actually encouraged Bible reading, which set off a Bible reading revolution. Uh, People came to church to read. In each church, they actually placed a Bible in English, and people flocked that could read, or went with people that could read, if they couldn't read, to listen to someone reading the Bible. All right, so I, I always give this example when I think about this, and it's just, I have a shelf at home. It has 25 Bibles on it, different different versions. My kids have four or five Bibles. I mean, the, we just need to let that sit in, the weight of not having God's Word accessible, and now that it is accessible. I mean, just... First, should say, God, thank you that I live where I live and when, because I have access to it, but also that the reality is the powers of this world were trying to silence God's word, yet God broke through. So, praise the Lord for that. I just, you just need to think about these things. We can't just be, um, oh, and the Bible was legal to read. Are you kidding me? I mean, how vital is that to our Christian life? I mean, that's what we think about, and like, hey, we judge and, merit and determine our, our discipline by how we read God's word, and these people didn't have it, so we are a fortunate people, and um, it's it's unbelievable to think about. Um, so praise the Lord that He was preserving His word and moving through it. Um, the priests, there, was, there were still priests overseeing these churches. Accused the people of reading the Bibles instead of listening to their sermons. (laughs) I don't know if any of y'all have ever done that. I won't tell Dan. Um, However, if the evangelicals or the Protestants of the day were excited about the reforms taking place because of Henry, he was quick to dash their hopes. He was an impetuous man who changed his laws often. Oftentimes, he changed his laws. So, I've named three women he married. Well, he married three others. So, another one got beheaded, and another one died, and then another one survived when he died. So, um, those women, as they became his uh, wife, his spouse, each had different sets of influences. And sometimes they'd be more Catholic, sometimes they'd be more Protestant. And so, he went up and down. So, we don't trust in kings Um, in 1543 actually henry banned all unauthorized bible exposition so if you weren't within the church of england you couldn't teach the bible Um, and all private bible reading by the uneducated was not allowed okay what does that even mean how does somebody even legislate that or investigate that but if you were uneducated you couldn't read the bible okay uh 1546, he banned all unauthorized translations of the Bible. I mean, Bible translations are coming out, so Tyndale started it, but there's a Bible translation revolution that's happening too. Um, so what we can say about Henry was he was an English Catholic. He wanted the Catholic faith without the Roman ties and corruption. He just wanted his own English ties and his own English corruption. Um, yet, in God's providence... Uh, the power of the Bible had been unleashed, and that could not be restrained. All right, so he dies, 1546-47, and his son Edward becomes king. Edward is nine years old, so not doing much as king. He's assisted by his uncle, Edward Seymour, as the Lord Protector. However, Edward, for his brief 15 years of life, was tutored by the finest Protestant tutors, So, he helped. During his reign, Protestantism advanced. Um, The main person involved in that is a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He advanced the cause. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the Church of England under Henry, okay? So, he has Protestant leanings. He institutes the following, clergy can marry, Everyone receives the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. At this point, the people were just receiving the bread. Um, The priests were taking the wine. Altars were replaced in the chapels with tables. Hey, we have a table in the front of ours. It's where we gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, Images of the saints were removed. So all these things that were Romish, like the Roman Catholic Church, were removed. Instead, when ministers were ordained um, into the Church of England, instead of them receiving priestly garments, they received a Bible in English. How about that? Um, uh, Cramer wrote the Liturgy of the Church of England, which is beautiful, Uh, in 1549 and 1552. He has two different versions, he enhanced one in 1552. Uh, It's the Book of Common Prayer. It's English, it's written in English, not in Latin. The liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church was in Latin. Um, And it was evangelical, so gospel truths. The 1549 one was less evangelical, and then as time was going, he made it a little bit more forceful. And particularly the Lord's Supper was more consistent with the Reformed faith. So, crisis of administration in the Church of England... You have all these priests that are over churches that are Catholic, raised or grew up Catholic and were trained in Catholic thought and theology and preaching or administration. So what do you do? Well, Cranmer wrote a book of homilies. So if you you weren't a Protestant or didn't know anything about Protestantism, Protestantism, you could just read the sermon from the book of homilies associated with that given week. And we might think, oh, that's kind of weird. You're reading somebody else's sermons. Well, it's better than reading bad stuff, right? So he wrote a book of homilies for those pastors who had not been trained, and there was an emphasis on preaching. And these men were pastors now, not priests. Um, He also wrote the 42 Articles, which is a summary of the Church of England's theology. It was 42 Articles in 1552. Later, in 1563, they removed a few, so it's just now the 39 Articles. Don't ask me which three they removed because I didn't look at that. Um, Edward died as King Edward VI, died as a teenager, about 15 years old. He attempted to set up his cousin. This is the story of Lady Jane Grey as the next queen. Yet, Lady Jane Grey Grey had a stellar one-week rule as queen, but Mary, Edward's half-sister, soon overtook Lady Jane Grey. Uh, Lady Jane was killed, and Mary became Queen of England. Um, so Mary is the daughter of Henry and Catherine. It's, it's Henry's first wife. So Mary I becomes, becomes Queen, and this is who we know as Bloody Mary. So she has a Spanish and Catholic heritage. So after uh, Henry divorces Catherine... remember catherine wasn't beheaded she was just divorced catherine was sent off to live in the country and raise mary and mary probably was upset about that probably would have preferred living in the royal court so she blamed protestantism for that Uh, so she opposed the protestant cause that was the reason for her horrible life cranmer was removed bibles were taken out of churches Clergy were required to separate from their wives. This this is just crazy, everything that's happening. Uh, Priestly garments or vestments returned. Images were placed back in the church. The mass, as uh, instructed by the Catholic Church, was instituted. Um, Those who bought the former monasteries and church lands were not required to give those up if they agreed to attend mass. And most notably she persecuted protestants Um, she married interesting here philip of spain who has since taken over as the king of spain uh, for charles v and philip is noted for the inquisition in spain so she's thinking oh i can adopt some of philip's methods here in england Uh, many protestants fearing persecution fled they left to the continent and they went to Geneva, which is where Calvin is, um, which is huge for the topic we're really talking about, which is the Puritans. Um, That would be the theological education that was needed for the Puritans who would come to prominence in the next 50 years. Um, In Geneva, uh, the Geneva Bible is published. What's neat about the Geneva Bible includes study notes. Just think your MacArthur study Bible, but from Geneva and John Calvin… And so that was, has reformed theology study notes, uh, and most troubling to the Catholics was that it, include, it identified the Pope as the Antichrist, so that might have been a, a, shot, a shot over the bowels. But <clears throat> officially, over 300 Protestants were publicly killed in Mary's reign. Um, that does not include those who just died in prison uh, during the time that she reigned. Um, this painted an awful picture, though, for the Roman Catholic Church in the eyes of the English people. Um, so, 300 like pastors and preachers and teachers of God's Word were killed. So, I mean, you, know, you kind of think about that, and you're like, hey, 300, that didn't seem, I mean, I mean, we're living within 100 years of, you know, 7 million Jews being killed. That's a big number, right, by Hitler. But 300... It's a big number. I mean, it's a systematic killing of the people that were teaching God's Word. Um, Mary, however, died without an heir. Um, you should read the story of Latimer and Ridley as far as uh, martyrdom, and the one thing I'll tell you is <coughs> Latimer and Ridley, faithful men uh, that, were, that died for their faith, burned at the stake and ridley for some reason the stake was burning very slowly and is really really it's awful to read the pain that he experienced <coughs> but latimer said this to him as he was dying as he was dying faster he said be of good comfort mr ridley and play the man we shall we shall this day light such a candle by god's grace in england at, in england as i trust never shall be put out <coughs> and that is The candle of the gospel, I would say, in the world, hasn't been put out. Potentially, it's been extinguished in parts of England. Interesting, though, Thomas Cranmer, uh, the most important reformer after Tyndale, in my view, at this time, um, he's arrested by Mary, and he's given the option to recant, and he recants. So this, okay... Latimer and Ridley, that's who we all want to be. If we're like put at the stake, we want to be these guys. But I found something in, in, in Cranmer that is helpful. So they come to him, and he's in prison. And they say, will you reject your faith? And he's like, I want to live. That's not noble. That's, 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 but I'm wondering how, off, how many of us, me, would be Thomas Cranmer. Um, so he is freed. But they, a condition of his release was, you not only have to recant privately, you have to recant publicly. So God was gracious to Cranmer and gave him another opportunity. And he gets up publicly and he um, denounced his recanting. Um, so isn't that like God? Isn't that gracious of him to give him that opportunity? Um, and in, in his rejection of his recantation, he also rejected papal authority. And they quickly took him off the stage and killed him. Um, But I just, those little snippets mean so much. And there's things that we can hold to. And those are the memorials we need to remember because it's evidences of God's faithfulness and God's grace in his people in history. Like I said, Mary dies without an heir. She thought she got pregnant. She and Philip um, were married. However, what she thought was a baby was stomach cancer, and she died in 1558. Uh, And I have one more person to talk about, but we don't have time. Uh, So Queen Elizabeth then comes to the throne. So Queen Elizabeth is the daughter of Henry and his second wife, Anne Boleyn, who's a Protestant. So just think about this. People are really excited. We're coming out of the reign of Bloody Mary. Where they're killing all of our pastors. Now, Elizabeth is on the throne. She's going to be a Protestant. All these people get to come back from um, Geneva, and now we're going to have a great church. Or not. So, we'll talk about that next week and I'll also talk about why the study of the Puritans are necessary. Let me pray for us. God, I um, am grateful for how you have um, preserved your church and that you have built her up, and Lord, that we as believers, Lord, have such a great heritage in the work that you're doing, and Lord, that we also are participants in the work of you building your church. So Lord, I pray that you would use the time that we just had, Lord, to propel us uh, not only to worship, but also to action, And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we go um, worship you in spirit and truth uh, by singing and by praying and by listening to the sermon and hearing your scriptures read. So Lord, I pray that you would be honored in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.